0: Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen.
1: Hey, how you doing? Excuse me. (laughs) How you doing? It's uh, mid-October, for God's sake time for me to start worrying about buying halloween candy i can't buy it until the very end because if it's in the house i'm gonna eat it then i'll have to go out and buy some more and yet if i wait until let's say the day before halloween i go to buy it there's nothing but garbage left i don't want to be the old lady giving out garbage i don't know what to do and on top of it i don't get a lot of a lot of trick-or-treaters so I don't know. These these are the stresses of life. Hey, this just in. Want to share it with you because it's surprising to me. Uh, one of I think the most uh, gifted columnists, but really just at heart a reporter, and still is Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, uh, is leaving. Um, And he's leaving to return to the West Coast, specifically to his home state of Oregon. And I guess, I don't think he's announced he's gonna run for governor. He'd make a fine governor. He's, he and I mean, if you've read his columns over the, I think he's been there for easily 20 years. Uh, this is a, a good man, a man with a huge heart and a, a real feel for real people, as opposed to the elites, <laughs> just regular folk. His uh, columns and stories about the people he grew up with and what happened to them, uh, and generally what happened to them was not good, uh, are so moving. So anyway, that little bit of breaking news, Nick Kristoff leaving the New York Times to enter the... The world of politics. God help him. I also, uh, speaking of our current world of politics, I just came across a video. Uh, I think it was from something last night. Uh, it was a rally for another would-be governor, and that would be the governor of Virginia. They've got a election coming up, and it's one that's starting to like that recall in California, make uh, Democrats uh, queasy. Uh, The Democratic candidate is a former governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, uh, who got term limited out, but then you're allowed to come back and try again. Virginia, as we've heard, has turned more and more into a uh, pretty steadily blue state. So why would you think some Trumpist and totally Trumpist Republican running against McAuliffe could conceivably win. But apparently those pesky polls are showing an extremely tight race. I don't know. But the guy running against McAuliffe is, you know, one of the, unfortunately, uh, myriad of Trump impersonators who uh, every word out of their mouth uh every, every every everything they do is to curry favor with der uh, Trumper. And last night at one of their rallies, and this is a video I saw, some woman announces to the crowd uh, a, a woman comes on stage with a flag with an American flag. And the woman who's moderating, this gatherings uh, identifies this flag as a a flag, one of the flags that was flown at what she then terms the peaceful rally at the Capitol on January 6th. This is one of the flags that was at the Capitol on January 6th. And then they all rise and pledge allegiance to that flag. Now, here again, knowing your history is a a good idea. Because this, there's a word for this in German that I can't pronounce, the flag, this particular flag. Because in German, in Germany, Uh, Something very similar happened. After Hitler's first uh, rather pathetic attempt at a coup, the beer putsch failed. A bloodied flag from that became a flag that made the rounds at two Nazi rallies. Where it was treated as a you know, almost a saintly symbol and was pledged allegiance to, and I believe it was called—I I don't know the German—but it would—I think it was called uh, the, the blood flag. It's exactly what. The supporters of, uh, I think his name is Youngkin. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. The Republican running for governor of Virginia. Exa- the, you know, they got to know this. I mean, these are wannabe Nazis and fascists. So they got to know this. Somebody knows this stuff and, and how you, uh, you know, valorize uh, uh, criminal behavior and seditious behavior. Uh, boy. That was a little uh, blood chilling. America now has blood flags making the rounds. So let me share with you a story I've shared with everybody I can buttonhole of late. uh, Because just telling it makes me happy. And I've got to. I've got to share it with you, although I run the risk of telling it to a number of you who already heard it and heard the original source tell it, which is what I heard because it was on the radio and PR, I believe, last weekend. I can't get it out of my head. I just keep talking about it. And I will try to be brief, but I'm always uh I'm always ranting about how the human animal is the most destructive animal on this planet i mean that is, that's a statement of fact <laughs> there's there's no, there's no animal anywhere even in the running i mean that's a, that, that it's a category of one i just' it and um so when there's a story about one of us humans doing something to help the other animals that we so often drive to extinction it it gladdens my my heart and This story uh, happens uh, in the ocean on a dark night, about 17, 18 miles off the coast of California, I think uh, San Francisco. And a guy who uh, owned a boat that he rented out for anything you wanted it for throw a loved one's uh, cremains into the ocean or have a party or go fishing, uh, got some kind of a alert that there was a whale in distress that appeared to be caught in netting, Fisher, fisherman's netting. And um, that's That's the information he had. The only other information that it was about 17, 18 miles out. And he calls a few friends, I guess, who also had boats. Because more than one boat went. And I think about four or five of his buddies went. And they went into the dark ocean heading out. I mean, whether or not they could even find This animal was certainly problematic. It was dark. The ocean was dark. The sky was dark. The whale was dark. But they did. And of course, they had diving gear on, and they assessed the situation, and it was bad. This poor, it was a female humpback had clearly been struggling to free itself for a long, long time and was losing the battle. There was no way. There was there were ropes uh, absolutely lashed all around her tail with these heavy, what would they have been, crab or shrimp, I don't know, um, boxes, what cages, hanging from her. I mean, tons of weight dragging her down so that she was almost in a in a vertical position in the water. And there was rope around her head and rope around her body. She was just, and she was weak, weakening quickly. Uh, when they saw how bad it was, there was a great deal of despair, but they went to work. And they started cutting. Hour after hour in the dark. Despairing over and over that they could possibly get this done. And obviously, since I told you it was a good story. They did. And one of them made a cut. And damn if. That rope didn't fall away, and this glorious animal took off, free. I'm remembering that there were four guys in the water, and they just went nuts. The joy they felt of having done what they did They were hooting and hollering and high-fiving. And, you know, they looked around to see the whale and they couldn't see the whale. The whale was gone. But then one of them happened to notice a large object getting closer to him. And it was coming at a very high rate of speed. Rate of speed? It was coming fast. It was the whale. And the whale was coming back and traveling too fast for this guy's comfort. And he thought, I can't get out. How do you dodge whale? I can't get out of the way. He figured he was about to get bam. And as this huge leviathan comes directly at him. It stops on a dime just inches away from him and trains its grapefruit-sized eye on his eyes and held that stare For like 30 seconds They just Looked at each other And then the whale Sort of nudged him In the chest pushing him back Just a little bit gently And then did it again
0: And again And then it
1: Stopped and turned and went to the next diver and did the exact same thing. The eye contact, look, looking at them, and then the touching. Went to all four in the same way. And even went to the boats that they had come in and nudged the boats as well. And then left.
0: I cannot imagine an experience like that. Um,
1: I don't think anyone hearing the story, and certainly the people who experienced it, uh, had no doubt that that whale was saying thank you, was expressing gratitude, was, was whatever in whale talk that that would be. And yet, of course, they, in this story, had to interview some biologist type who then started grousing about anthropomorphizing animals and how it might well not have been gratitude. Well, what the hell else could it have been? And this guy went on to say. Well, suppose instead of a whale, it was a bear that they found, and they freed a bear caught in a trap, and then the bear turned around and ate him. Was that bear expressing ingratitude? (laughs) Oh, but what a wondrous story. What a wondrous story. For those of you who heard the original and are saying, well, that wasn't quite what happened, Lynn. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just heard it once. That's how I took it in and remembered it. And I think generally speaking, I got it about right. So there. Now, speaking of, that brings us to, you know, once in a lifetime experiences. We returned 24 hours ago to... uh Captain Kirk, William Shatner, going up into space, actually. Um, I was trying to monitor it during the show yesterday, as you know, probably annoying everybody. Uh, Well, he, yeah, so he did it. He came back down, and I watched when he came down, and he was, I thought sort of, he was babbling somewhat incoherently, like anybody would after, an astonishing experience, uh, which you still haven't quite filtered. You're still almost in a state of of, of shock. <laughs> and I actually think, because he was babbling into Bezos's ear, and I, I, I think Bezos was uh, actually rather bored because uh, some of it did seem to me to be incoherent, although Bezos told him he was being eloquent believe but you know who can i mean my god my god but he said one thing i I was i think i found this in the post-gazette story. it might have been the associated press uh account <laughs> and it brings us to another topic that we were talking about yesterday which is language and how language now is being policed uh like never before. And uh and why can I never figure out where anything is there it is. Um and yeah it's Associated Press and, and Shatner he's quoted as saying that this. Everybody and now granted he had just, you know, been up in space. I, it, 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 Everyone in the world needs to do this, and I—I I, I heard him say that, and I thought, "Oh yeah, sure." Well, uh, anybody got a spare quarter mil us hanging around? And and Shatner, who probably does, didn't have to pay. So he was saying, "Everybody in the world needs to do this. Everybody in the world needs to see this, to see the blue color whip by and." And now you're staring into blackness. That's the thing. That is the thing he couldn't get out of his head. He kept saying, there was a blue and it was just this thin little thing. And then bang, black, blackness. And he said it was death. He he equated the black with death, which I could tell Bezos didn't like either. Because Bezos is trying to get people to rock it up, right? And why would anyone want to rock it into death? But so Shatner's saying, Death black, oh my God, that's that thing. And here I'm back to absolutely quoting Shatner. The covering of blue, this sheath, this this blanket, this comforter of blue that we have around. Oh, that's blue sky. And then suddenly you shoot through it all, and you're looking into blackness, into black. Ugliness.
0: And I read that and said, whoa.
1: Black ugliness. And I, I was, you know, <laughs> what we were talking about yesterday was, I remember saying that Using the adjective black in front of anything these days can be fraught. Because we do know that, you know, the black-hatted guy in the Cowboys was the bad guy. The white hats were the good guys. And it goes throughout our culture, right? Although not totally. In the black, in your ledger books, is good, so it's not always the case, but but when he finishes on that, I mean, he was freaked by the blue of the sky disappearing so quickly and into this blackness, but that blackness meant death. Well, when you're 90 years old, I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that um, the fact that he ended thusly uh, would uh, definitely not be acceptable verbiage, even though we know he didn't mean anything racial. He wasn't talking about race. He was talking about the fact that he couldn't see anything he recognized. Right? I think which then brings us to something else that Milt sent me today. And he said, he was just curious, but was wondering how, where I came down on this issue. And I, the issue being, and it's of a piece with our uh, renewed wokeness. And uh, should this be allowed? Should that be allowed? um if you've got a, a character in a movie that's trans, should should a, should a cis person be able to play that role? Uh, we certainly don't let white actors do blackface anymore. So where do these lines get drawn? And what he wanted to know, and this article he sent me from the... Uh, Originally appeared in the Times of Israel, is who has the right to play a Jew? And I have to tell you, this has rarely uh, occurred. He wanted to know, as because I'm a Jew, how I would feel about that. That so often, when a Jew is the major character in a movie or in a series, the actor is not a Jew. They're playing a Jew and my initial reaction to this is it's acting I mean obviously if the if the character is a uh I don't know a Korean uh, uh lesbian uh who's a Catholic let's say that You don't have to go looking for an actor who is all those three things. If a person's an actor, they are trained to put on the the skin of someone other than themselves. That's the whole craft. So this idea that you can't play something that you yourself aren't. Now, obviously, this is a very complicated subject. Obviously. But they go on to say on how this very Jewish series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, or Maisel, never knew how to pronounce it. The the, the leads in it, who playing, it's such a Jewish thing. It is so Jewish, you can't see straight. And yet, the star is not a Jew. And her father, Tony Shalhoub, is not a Jew. In fact, he's Lebanese. So what? But it says here, over the past few weeks and months, a growing chorus of voices has once again been speaking out about Jewish representation in Hollywood at a time when Jewish stories and characters are more prominent than ever on screen. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jews in Hollywood, you think, what are you talking about? All those old studios, MGM, those, uh, they, uh, uh, paramount, those, the, those, those were Jews who started those studios, immigrant Jews. Who started the studios. Created Hollywood. But they didn't put Jews on screen. And if they did, they wiped out their Jewish names.
0: And apparently that's still,
1: I guess, going on. They're doing a biopic of. uh, Of. Uh Joan Rivers, and who was you know just quintessentially jew, and that is not going to a Jewish actress. Helen Mirren was cast as gold of my ear in an upcoming film. Felicity Jones played Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the basis of sex uh, on and on and on, and I'm looking at this and thinking, yeah, so. <laughs> There's they're actors. Now, it would be true that a Jew might have something just innate from their life experience that would add a something, a nuance, of this or a that, but I don't know. And then they say that Sarah Silverman, the actress and comedian, has come into the fray, and she came down angle on the one side that Jews should play Jews and I was shocked but here's what she says today and you see this is it it's the context of today when William Shatner saying oh there was black ugliness is like something that you cringe to read we are so aware now of how we identify what group we are in. And if we are in a minority group, especially, and I got news for you, Jews are probably the smallest minority group of all that get talked about, but they're not viewed that way. And Silverman says today, when the importance of representation is seen as so essential and so front and center, why does ours, Talking about Jews. Why does ours constantly get breached? One could argue, for instance, that a Gentile playing Joan Rivers correctly would be doing what is actually called Jew face, like blackface. And she goes on to say I think acting is acting, and I get that all this identity politics is annoying. I love watching an actor play a character that is wildly different than who they are. But right now, representation fucking matters. So it has to finally also matter for Jews as well. Ah, I'm sorry. I can't go there. Because this article asks the question, where does a line get drawn? Does that mean Jewish actors can no longer play non-Jewish characters? Now, there's a book out, and I actually my brother read it, and he told me to read it. He says it's very upsetting, but you really need to read it. It's brilliant. And it's called Jews Don't Count. It's by a, by a, a man named Badiel. He's, I think, British David Badgel. And he he talks about the fact that discrimination the Jews don't often figure in with other minorities. Um they they don't he says this. He's a Jew. Neither myself nor Sarah Silverman think anything else but that we should let actors act, he says. And in an ideal world, everyone could play anyone. In the world where we live more and more, it simply is the case that minority parts have to be played by actors from that minority. So if Jews are somehow exempt from that stricture, you have to ask why. And the answer is, as it often is, because Jews don't count. Now, see, I think the first time this issue ever came into my consciousness, frankly, was uh, an incredible hour I spent in the studio at WTAE on my radio show then. This would be in the 80s with August Wilson sitting across from me. And in interviewing him, and this was at a time when he was outraging a lot of folks on Broadway by insisting that only a black director could direct his plays. And there was a lot of pushback. He wanted nothing but people who experienced the very environment life uh, that he was portraying because he knew they would bring something to it that a white director could not. Um, And I remember, I think I pushed back because it was, I understood, but I, I thought it seemed like segregation again but i remember he was so passionate about it so sure and at the time it was hardly something that any in the establishment agreed with there was a lot of pushback coming at him but that's the first time i ever thought about it and i sure as hell never thought about the Jew part. I don't know. Milt asked me, where do I stand on this? I don't know. I really feel in some ways it is a one of those classic slippery slopes. <laughs> um, the reality is, is, you know, you could have a, let's say, uh, a non-Jew. Just nail, nail a role of a Jew. Just you couldn't have played it better. And that part might have gone to, let's say, a Jewish actor who, frankly, wasn't going to do as well as – I mean, I don't know. I mean, we, obviously, we, we the idea of a white character playing a black – I mean, a white actor playing a black character is absolutely out of the – you know, uh-uh. Ain't happening. But at the same time, like let's think of that, uh, you know, Bridgerton or other things where color blind casting is now going on. Hamilton, okay, where all of a sudden the founding fathers are black and Hispanic. Not a lot of white actors in Hamilton, even though the characters they're portraying are overwhelmingly obviously white. So I can see a lot of white people say, well, wait a minute, how come? Well, listen, <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's karma coming back to bite you. Yeah, they got every right. But I don't know. I don't know.
0: Um
1: And this article is interesting, and it goes on and on and on and on and on, and I, I don't know that I even have read the whole thing. Uh, they talk about Fran Drescher and her TV show some time back, The Nanny, and Fran Drescher is a Jew, and she totally, uh, she created the role, she produced Nanny, she did it all. She, she was That was her show. and. CBS that was airing it asked her to switch the character to be an Italian, not a Jew. I can't imagine why. I suppose they thought an uh, Italian would be more acceptable to the wider audience. And Drescher is quoted as saying, I really dug in my heels and said, I'm sorry, but the character of Fran must be Jewish. I'm not Italian. We can't write Italian with the richness of specificity that is our brand of comedy. I don't know. I don't know but it's man we're having we're having some difficult conversations aren't we and milt said um he assumed that rachel brosnan who played mrs mizel and um and this other actress who played uh the rabbi on transparent he assumed they were Jews. Well, because you're seeing them play Jews, right? He said, I was sure that these two were the epitome of strong Jewish women, deftly inhabiting strong Jewish characters. And now I'm just confused. But that's acting.
0: That's acting. My
1: everything's complicated. I got callers. Oh, I'm sorry. Why doesn't that show up on my goddamn? Hello.
2: Hey man, it's Mike in USC. Hey, hi. Um, yes, yeah, Susan. Sue. Um, not Susan. Um, Sarah Silverman had a yeah. podcast that I watched called Face. And Jewface, oh wow, Jew face that's what she called the co- the episode of the podcast, and she talked about you know what was in that article, and apparently she got a job and they asked her to do something that she didn't agree with, so she was fired, and they it, the character was a uh, you know upper a New York Jew um from the upper West side. And so they replaced her with a white actress who did all the stereotypes. And that's what got her thinking about, you know, I would have, I would have hit that out of the park. Um, and that's what got her thinking about, is this right? And then she went on to say all the other stuff that you're saying. And, you know, as a gay guy, I saw that in my career. That people would mm-hmm. say,
3: no, he's
2: too gay. And then they hire a straight mm-hmm. guy for the park. Like if you're uh, an actor in Hollywood and you want to win an Academy Award, straight actor in Hollywood, play a gay guy and you will win. Tom Thanks broke that That's fountain true. because apparently being gay is like so <laughs> hard to play, right? Um, so I get
3: it. Well
1: no, but Mike, they've gotta this is like, you know, straight men having to like make love or kiss, you know, whatever. Other men. So that's right. heroic, I think they thought. What? What? It's amazing what they're doing for their craft.
2: How brave of them! Right? How yeah. Brave.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. Um, exactly. So for me, I think if the statement for Sarah Silverman is "uh, oh, she's too Jewish to play this role," <laughs> then it should be a Jewish person to play the role,
1: right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Probably. But so, um, you're, but they wanted someone who was going to do all the
2: the caricature Jewish tropes right, of they, what? with the bagels and the uh, uh, yeah. uh, right.
3: not
1: that there's you know there's listen uh, that comes from somewhere I mean that's there <laughs> but uh, oh wow
2: wow so I, I you know and and that's can we be totally frank. The gay, gay guys aren't played because they're too effeminate, and a lot of Jewish actors and actresses aren't hired because they're not pretty enough.
1: Yeah, they look like Jews.
2: yeah right. So that's really what's happening here
1: is <laughs> they don't
2: fit that stereotype of what a pretty person should be. So hence, mm-hmm. we might not get people to watch it if a Jewish actress with more stereotypically Jewish features were to play um, Midge Maisel on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Right. And then, but then I also get the feeling you heard the whole drama about the new West Side story, the girl, it's all Latino cast, Latina cast, but Maria is not from Puerto Rico. She's half, (laughs) she's half, to oh, come on. I know. What
1: nonsense. Not white.
2: Right. I have, Jesus. So I'm screaming when I'm reading the article. Oh. You know, just like there happens to be a million 19-year-olds oh. who can sing and dance and act, who have oh. credits to their name, who can carry off a lead, who also happen to be Puerto Ricans. <laughs> so there is a place where this goes really yeah. crazy.
1: Yes. Yes. And I think we're getting there. I, I sort of do. I, I I don't know. You know, though, I, you reminded me, I once uh, bumped into David Shribman, who at the time was the editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and he's a Jew. And I said, hey, what is it with your paper that any time there's a Jewish holiday, like, oh, it's Rosh Hashanah, oh, it's Passover, oh, it's this, that you manage to put on the front page or, you know, you find the most unbelievably caricature-like Jew (laughs) to illustrate the picture. I mean, it's like they go out of their way to say, could we find like a really ugly Jewish family? And let's show that. I said, you know, there's really good-looking Jews around. Why does it always have to? I once found something out. They once had a a picture of a Jew uh, here with, you know, a beard. And he was swinging a poor chicken around his head. And I said, what the hell is that? And it turns out, I guess, some really Orthodox Jews. And I can't even remember what the holiday is. I think they, the 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 chicken takes on their sins or so I don't know, some unbelievably ridiculous bull and it's uh, torturing chickens and unbelievable. And that was there. Now, as a Jew, I just took such offense. I mean, I just cringed. And the fact that at the time the paper had a Jewish editor, I thought, man, can just stop this. I don't know. I'm not saying they should... Yeah, go
2: ahead. There's a great line in Mad Men where Roger is taking his Jewish... wants his Jewish ex-wife to go to dinner with him. And he asks her, how Jewish are they? Cast of um, uh, Fiddler on the Roof or audience Fiddler of the Roof? (laughs) 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 So... so, (laughs) There are so many different variations of people, but oh, at least for the for the gays, right, the only ones that get played are that little narrow sliver. And I think what Sarah is saying is we are broader people than just this one little uh, narrow yeah. sliver. Oh, yeah. But how do we? how is that made happen when only white straight guys are in charge of everything?
1: Well, and white straight guys worrying that an increasingly uh clearly bigoted uh audience <laughs> only wants to see certain things. Right? But this right. is how then, bigotry gets gets solidified, you know, through mass culture, through media. this is a Jew, this is a gay, this is what people know, right?
2: Right. I don't know. And not to mention what happens, what they're really looking at, this is really all, probably all about money, and movies being made now yeah. are what will the distribution in, in Asia get us.
1: That's right. That's right. And so, there, if they want to be distributed in, uh, let's say, the Middle East or in Muslim countries, uh, better not have a Jew front and center.
2: Or a gay, right? Or so there's all of right. that playing into this too. Right. Um, that can't oh, just be brother. whittled out by uh, Rachel Brosnahan is playing Midge Mazel. Look at that. Another example. I uh, hear you. Well, thank you. Sorry, I didn't a, make it any more clear for you.
1: No. Well, it's no, it's a not. It's a murky subject. <laughs> it's a real murky subject. But thank you. It's good to exercise sure. our heads. Bye. 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 And Benjamin writes, I've wondered if representation will get to the point that people will complain if a Japanese actor plays a Chinese or Korean character. Oh, you bet. Benjamin, that's spoken like a Caucasian who can't tell the difference between a Japanese person and a Chinese person and a Korean person, because I can tell you they can. Seriously. Also, it made news a few years back when a white director was granted permission by the August Wilson estate. I don't know if he would have granted permission by the August Wilson estate to direct one of his plays in New York. I understand Wilson's attitude, but at the same time, why limit anyone but African Americans? Because he, from directing his work, because he, I wish he were here to argue the point. Uh, He felt that they had lived. I mean, think of what his plays were. His plays were, are a chronicle of Black American uh, experience, urban experience mostly, because most of them are set right here in Pittsburgh. And uh, a Black person would have, if not lived, that the experience of these characters had family that lived the experience of these characters, you know, I I don't, I really, I don't know, but we're, we're heading down some strange, strange, I don't know. Hey, I got something here. Excuse me. I part of me wanted to tell you uh, today before the show, I, I thought to myself, I have to tell them that would be you how just generally speaking i'm I'm living like in a real state of fear I really am i every time I read and i and I am I do not see uh anything but uh what Shatner saw I see the dark i i see. We're hurtling at speeds too, too fast. into the, But, you know, I think anyone who listens to me knows. But it's um, something. It's, um, so here's a little story I read. And maybe you saw this, too. See, I never know. I have to stop prefacing everything I'm about to say with maybe you know this. But have you heard the story about icky? Icky. It's a name for a dog. Just a five-pound chihuahua. Yeah. Icky um, is lucky because Icky would be... There wouldn't be a story. Icky would be uh, dead. Uh, This couple uh, were checking in uh, at the Lubbock, Texas airport for a trip to Las Vegas. Um, And they were flying Southwest. Ah, That's amazing. It's the fact that the plane took off is amazing. They were flying Southwest, Christy and Jared Owens, and they were going to check their luggage and damn if it was not like a little bit overweight, which means they had to pay extra. And the person who was checking them in, said, you know, you're not much over. Maybe you could, I mean, we'll let you open it up and take some, a few things out and stick them in your carry-ons. And we can get you under, under the wire. So they opened up uh, their case. And Icky's head pops out of Jared's cowboy boot. The last thing he'd stuck in. And I'm thinking, the last thing you stuck in is you put your dirty cowboy boots on top of all the clothes. But he did, and I guess he is a little guy, and he loves being going into tight little places. And he was either in the boot when he put. Who knows? But there was the dog hadn't made a sound all the way to the airport. He was sleeping. Um. And the couple thought, oh my God, they think we were doing this, trying to, and they said, you know, whatever. Anyway, everything turned out okay. If Icky had not been found in that way, he would have been dead. He would have suffocated. There's no doubt about that, I don't think. Um, and what was interesting about it is how wonderful the woman that was checking them in was. I mean, she just, she helped them. She made sure that she, they called someone to come and get Icky. He was, by the way, named Icky because, because they found him uh, on the, on a highway. uh, And he was, you know, malnourished and filthy and probably not, you know, near death then. And they, and they scooped him up and he looked so horrible that their, I guess, kids named him Icky. <laughs> Mickey. And so he cheated death again. I don't know. They made it to Vegas and, uh, and Icky uh went back home. And uh but what was interesting is I then I I don't usually do this because I I know what's what's waiting there. I I went to the comments section. And you know, some people were reacting to me like, well, oh, what a great little story, oh how cute, how funny, thank God they found him, yada yeah, yada yeah, yeah! And then there was this whole bunch of folks who said, oh, yeah, right, sure, fat chance. There's no way. This is a way, here, I'll go to the comments now. This is a way Southwest has had a lot of bad publicity. They put out this feel-good story, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's all a setup, yada yadda, yadda. Um, and that's... Yeah, I, I, of course, now I can't find one. Uh, and then people start ranting at the people who don't believe anything they see, that there always has to be um, an alternative, that anything they read is is bull, is false. Uh, I, I, and, and you wonder what the hell has happened. I mean, was that your reaction that that? I don't know, and then people start talking about you, conspiracy theorists. Everyone thinking this was intentional, and I, I don't know. I don't know.
0: So they said,
1: how would they have left the house without checking? Say. <laughs> Turns out Icky's not their only dog. They got cats. They're real animal lovers. And what the hell? Why can't people just? We're doomed. I'm telling you. We're doomed. I'm doomed because I should have saved that story for the very end. And I got five minutes left. Oh, good. I got some emails. Hang on.
3: God
1: bless you. Bree and Beth. Beth writes, hello. And she's talking about this representation stuff in acting. The other issue is for premiere shows or movies. Oh, she works in the industry, so she's always giving us inside uh, scoops. For premiere shows and movies, there are two or three casting directors that they always use. Why would they use two or three? It is these people I guess they're the ones who cast the part. It is these people who do not think outside of the casting box, so to speak. So they maintain their good relationships with the studios and the premier directors. Um, Wow. And Beth says, I'm hearing there will be a big labor strike starting Monday. Well, the strike's been authorized. These are the behind the scenes people. There will not be able to be anything shot without them. And they're planning on walking out. They're claiming outrageous working conditions. Working well beyond 12-hour shifts, no time for bathroom break. I mean just like what I some of the things I've read is just outrageous. So, that's going to shut down all the productions going on here and everywhere else. Maybe they'll settle before them. I'm hearing there'll be a big labor strike starting on Monday, so 90% of everything that is being filmed will shut down. Beth says, I hope the unions succeed because there must be major changes in rates of pay and the insane hours we work. There you go. Well, one of the good things this pandemic has brought on is uh, is workers flexing their muscle. You got a, what, a walkout at John Deere. There's some strikes going on, which never used to happen. And when our economy is, you know, with the supply chain mass and all that, it's it's all of these things have a negative impact. And um, workers are feeling they're uh, flexing their muscle. And I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to see it. Here's the other part of it, though. We all, the consumer, who have been well-schooled in this country to want things cheap and fast, that's all we're about. That's why Bezos is a gazillionaire. We, the consumer who's driven these wage, wages down throughout our economy so that the services are cheaper, so that the goods produced are cheaper. And we're either going to have to learn to spend more and shut up or do without everything's going to be more expensive. When all that money goes only to the top and the people who produce the service and produce the goods get screwed and are on food stamps and the taxpayers are paying them so they can eat, something is grievously wrong. And what is grievously wrong is what our American capitalism has morphed into, which is as ugly and rapacious and confiscatory thievery from working people, as you can imagine. Brie writes memoirs of a geisha. Are you talking about that movie? Who? Was it not a, I don't remember who played it. Wasn't that a, uh, you're going to have to be more specific there, Bree. Oh, and anyway, it's 11. Well, there we go. And there's a whole bunch of serious stuff that I didn't get to talk about, which I am so happy about. I'm glad I told the whale story. That took up a lot of time, and isn't that a hell of a story? I can't stop. I'm going to stop people on the street and tell them. I'm sort of out of control. Okay, guys, I'm heading into my weekend. I'm looking forward to it, and I'll uh, talk to you on Monday. Be safe.